good things happening and starting up again. And as we get ready for kind of back to school, many of the families are uh, restarting school now uh, with the beginning of September. This is also a great time to not just be back to school, but also back to church, uh, back to midweek programs and the things that are happening here. So I encourage all of you to really make church central uh, to your household life in a year where there's always going to be things competing between school and sports and work, uh, to really make God's word uh, in the local church central to your family's life. And there's going to be lots of opportunities to do that. So uh, let's pray for these ministries uh, that are going to be restarting. And remember, these ministries, these events, we're not doing them for ourselves. We're doing them for the Lord. We're not doing it to make our name great. We're doing it to make his name great. And so let's pray that God is gracious and uses us uh, to show this world that God is with us through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and uh, let's pray for our time in the word this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word was given supernaturally. We thank you that unlike other books and writings and poems and plays, this Bible that we have is not just another historical work, but that it's historical and inspired by your very spirit. That the authors of the Bible were carried along to write exactly what you wanted them to write. And that by your grace, you even preserved your word so that we can have it literally sitting in our hands and on our cell phones. May it not be void, Lord. May you open our eyes and soften our heart to what you have inspired the biblical authors to write. May it penetrate us to our core and not just result in us feeling inspired or encouraged, but even deeper than that, Lord, may it result in us being changed. May it produce repentance in our life for your glory so that we may exemplify your son, Jesus Christ, here in Graham, Washington. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your glory as our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite books growing up was the Chronicles of Narnia series. I'd say after the Bible, no book truly, after the Bible has shaped me more in my thinking than the Chronicles of Narnia in a very positive way. I encourage all of you families and anyone with kids, or even if you haven't read these books, I encourage you to read them, to have them read, to read them to your children. They're full of biblical truths about the Christian life. And my favorite book in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia is the third book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there is a character, a boy named Eustace, that C.S. Lewis describes as a boy who was so awful that he almost deserved a terrible name like Eustace. That he was unkind, he was selfish, self-centered, mean, just an all-around awful person to be around, like San Francisco fans after beating the Seahawks. Just, you know, terrible, no, just kidding. But he was an unkind person, and in the book, there's a chapter where he is in punishment for his wrongdoings. He's magically turned into a dragon. And it's almost as if the ugliness of who he was on the inside could now be seen in the awfulness of this dragon on the outside. 
And as a result of being turned into a dragon, Eustace repents. He acknowledges his sin for the first time in his life, and he recognizes the error of his ways, and he grieves his sin. He mourns it. It says that all night this dragon is just crying out to the stars, and it was Eustace crying because of his sin. And then he meets Aslan. And he comes to Aslan in sorrow and repentance over his sin, sorrow and repentance, uh, having been turned into a dragon, and Aslan mercifully turns him back into a boy. But he doesn't do it in the way that you would imagine from a fairy tale. He doesn't turn the dragon into a boy like in a Disney movie. He does it in a very painful way. Aslan, he's a lion, and he takes his claws... He digs them into the scales of the dragon, Eustace says, so deep into his flesh that it almost felt like his claws were touching his heart. And that the lion digs into the scales and paw by paw, claw by claw, he tears away the dragon flesh until there is nothing left except this little and very changed now boy. And the reason why C.S. Lewis described this very painful situation, this painful process of lion claws ripping away the skin of a dragon, it was because C.S. Lewis wanted to make a very important point, which is that sanctification, the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the process of being changed by God, having our mind transformed and renewed, as Romans 12 says, is a painful process. Dealing with sin in our heart and in our flesh is not a pleasant thing. Oftentimes we like to candy coat the Christian experience and talk about how being a follower of Jesus Christ brings peace and joy and happiness, and those things are true, but Jesus told the crowd that if you want to be a disciple, you can only follow Jesus if you're carrying a cross. When Paul in Philippians 3.10 said that he wanted to know Christ, he described knowing Christ as having fellowship with Jesus' sufferings. There's an acknowledgement, even beyond just persecution, there's an acknowledgement that the Christian life one that is truly dealing with sin, one that is truly dealing with the dragon in all of us, is a painful process. And Paul's going to talk about that this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, 5 and 6. Because just as that process of Eustace being turned from a dragon to a boy was painful, we're also going to talk about a very painful topic this morning. Paul is going to address examples of sin that should grieve us, and that for probably all of us, in one way, shape, or form, has grieved us. And that's going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Remember, the point of Colossians is Paul is telling the Christians in Colossae how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Just as they had received Christ Jesus, now they are called to walk in him. The question is, how do we walk in Jesus? How do we grow? How are we sanctified or made into a saint? How are we made into this process of being prepared for our eternity in heaven? Chapter 3 
is a roadmap of that process. Chapter 3 is a chapter of specifics. It's a chapter of lion claws, where Paul gets to the heart of the matter and talks about sin and how we can deal with sin in order to honor and glorify God with our lives. And remember, it all started with perspective. Having a heavenly perspective, even though we are still here on earth. Well, now in verses 5 and 6, Paul is going to give some very specific examples of how we can have a heavenly perspective, a focus on the future, while still presently being here in our fallen bodies, here in this fallen earth. Read silently with me as I read verses 5 and 6, and you'll realize very quickly why this is a painful, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. I'm reading from the ESV. Which is idolatry. Verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The big idea for this morning, the point of this passage, in continuation of the previous big ideas in chapter 3, talking about how to live with a perspective on heaven, here on earth, is Paul is specifically going to command that the way that we have a heavenly perspective, the way that we live that out, is by living for heaven, by dying to the world. We are called to live for heaven by dying to the world. you guys have that big idea yet? If not, I can repeat it for you. Live for heaven, there we go, by dying to the world. And as you write that down, I want to clarify something for you. My guess is you've heard that phrase, dying to the world, before. Oftentimes, it's easy to think of the idea of dying to the world as a type of emotional rejection of the world that we're just fed up with the world. We're dead to the world. Just like we might be dead to something that, that we're sick of or we're tired of or, 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 or we want to be away from. When we talk about dying to the world, it too often can result in an unhealthy, not Christ-like, sinful rejection of the unsaved when in fact we're supposed to have a heart for the unsaved. We're supposed to love the unsaved. We're supposed to go out and make disciples of the unsaved. God, Jesus calls us to go out into the world. When we talk about dying to the world, the big idea of this passage, we're not called to live for heaven by forgetting the world or trying to insulate ourselves from the world. What's being said here is that we're to live for heaven by dying to the things that are still here on the world, which Paul is going to define as specifically our fleshly bodies. That's going to be your first point, actually. The first point is that we live for heaven by dying to the world by putting to death the members of your body, your physical body, who you are as a person, the members of it, the eyes by which you see, the mouth by which you speak, the mind by which you think, the heart by which you feel, your flesh, your person that is fallen, that is sinful, that is born of the first Adam and totally depraved that the members of that body, you need to put to death. Those aren't my words. 
Those are the Apostle Paul's words. He says this at the beginning of verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The most explicit way that he writes this in the Greek is, therefore, kill or execute those things which are here on the earth, referring to our members. When he talked earlier about how uh, our life is hidden with Christ on high, how we're supposed to have our mind set on what's above, not on the things here on earth, the way that we have a mind that is set on the things that are above, the therefore is that therefore, if that's where our focus should be, if we want to live in heaven, then we need to die on earth. If we want to live for God, then we need to die to ourselves. That's what Paul means when he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly or what is on earth in you, in your body. But remember, the only reason why Paul can tell Christians to put to death their body is because they've actually already been put to death put to death on the cross of Jesus Christ. We've talked about that again, sermon after sermon, the end of Colossians chapter 2, the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about how we have been buried with Christ. We have been circumcised with Christ, referring to Christ's crucifixion. We have shared in Christ's death. Therefore, since your body has shared in Christ's death on the cross, but because your body has not physically died yet, you are in this in-between, something that theologically we call the already but not yet, where you've been crucified with Christ, but your old body is not physically dead yet. Therefore, what you have to do is you have to live by faith in remembrance that because you've already been crucified with Christ, and because your body of sin is literally going to die someday, you need to live every day with the perspective, with the reminder, with the conviction that you are dead to sin. And not only that you are dead to sin, but you need to execute those aspects of your person that tempt you to sin. When you're tempted to look at someone with lust, you crucify that in the moment. When you're tempted to lash out in anger, you crucify that in the moment. You execute it. The old English way of putting this was even to mortify it, to stop it by killing it. In our society, we kill things that are a threat to us. We will even sometimes kill people who are a threat to us. Capital punishment is to protect us from those who cause us harm and who give every indication of continuing to cause harm. We kill them because it's so dangerous that the only way to stop it is to kill it. That's how Paul describes you. That's how Paul describes your flesh, your body. He says that it deserves capital punishment. That when you're in the moment, I want you to think about this, when you're in the moment of wanting to sin, you want to sin, don't you? When someone cuts you off, when you're sexually tempted, when someone has done you wrong in some way, your body, who you are as a person, it wants to sin. And there's a sick part of us that even in the moment, the split second of committing to sin, we're enjoying it. We enjoy sinning because our body is predisposed to sin. 
It is completely unnatural, according to the world at least, to in those moments of impulse where our bodies are telling us to sin in one way, shape, or form, to mortify it, to stop it, say, even though I feel this way, I'm going to turn the other way. I'm going to obey instead of disobey. And I want to let you know this as well, that just as much as in our flesh, in our old bodies, sinning is enjoyable in a small, temporary, hollow way, crucifying yourself to sin when tempted to sin is painful. Be willing to embrace that. Be willing to embrace that dying to sin is called dying for a reason. Because it's unpleasant. It's not something that's going to come easy. Even if you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, you may be strengthened over time. You may be equipped in greater ways over time. You may find that God graciously diminishes temptations over time. That may be the case, but that's not promised us. Dying to sin, like ripping off the scales of a dragon, hurts. Which is why Jesus said that following him means picking up our cross. Picking up your cross and following Jesus doesn't mean carrying some kind of arbitrary burden. It's referring to the willingness of a believer to die to their sin in the same way that Jesus died for our sin. It's following Jesus saying, I'm following this person who is God, who loved me and is going to die in my place for my sin, and I'm going to follow him by dying to my sin as well. Just as he took a cross, I'm going to take the cross. Just as he suffered for my sins, I'm going to suffer in the process of sanctification for my sin by dying in the moments when my flesh tells me to disobey. It's painful. It's unpleasant. But with the Spirit of God, it is possible. It's possible to do. You are not incapable of dying to sin. You are not incapable of avoiding temptation. The New Testament tells us that God gives us no... uh, Number one, God cannot tempt us. He will not tempt us. But there is no temptation that is greater than the Holy Spirit that resides in us. It's painful, but it's possible And this whole process of what we're talking about, this is faithfulness. That's what faith is. If you want to know how to live a faithful life as a Christian, die to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Remember that you've been crucified with Christ. Remember that your body of sin is someday physically going to die and live in light of that by executing, mortifying the parts of your body that tempt you to sin. Let's now go to the second point. The reason why Paul uses this language so strongly, he doesn't just say scold your your flesh. He doesn't just say try to help your flesh along, try to help the members of your flesh, try to encourage it. No, he says execute it. He says put it to death. The reason why he's so harsh is because of this. Point number two, the members of your body, they're wired for idolatry. They're predisposed for idolatry. Adam sinned, and Romans tells tells us that because Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. We were all genetically actually present in the body of Adam. Therefore, his sin was as if we were sinning. But then when he sinned, 
his nature became one of a sinner, and every person born of the first Adam was also born with a rebellious body, a body that was predisposed not to honor God, but to honor and worship idols. Paul is going to give examples of that in verse 5. And it's interesting that out out of all the examples, all the specifics that he could have started with, because this is really the first time that Paul really starts to get into specifics of sin and obedience in the Christian life. It's interesting that talking to a group of Christians, relatively strong Christians, that the first place that Paul goes is sexual sin. To a healthy church of believers, when Paul starts talking about specifics, He starts with sexual sin. And we all know why that is. Because any healthy church that you go to, any unhealthy church that you go to, but certainly any healthy, appearing to be spiritually strong local church that you'll attend is full of people that are struggling sexually, including this healthy church. Paul is taking the claws and he is digging deep with these examples. When we're talking about the need for the flesh to be crucified, the need for it to be mortified and executed because it's idolatry, the examples that Paul gives are sexual ones. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The second half of verse 5 says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That which is, is a plural which is referring to everything that was just listed before it. All the sins that he just named, all of it, according to Paul, is idolatry. That word sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia. It might sound familiar to you because the word porneia is where we get the word pornography. Porneia means any type of sexual understanding or action or behavior that is outside of God's definition for sex. In Genesis, God defined defined sex as between one man and only one woman. Not two men, not two women, not one man and two women. One man, one woman, and God said it is good. Isn't it amazing that God created the heavens and the earth with all its beauty, all its perfection, and there wasn't sex yet, and he said it wasn't good? That shows the high value that God gives to sexuality, that despite everything he made, it was still missing that one beautiful creation of sex. Yet that one beautiful, great thing that God understands as beautiful because he made it as beautiful, that is one thing in our flesh that all people have either been impacted by perversions of or themselves have also perverted. Whether it's the things we think about in private that no one else has access to, whether it's the things that we look at whether it's the way that we speak, whether it's the way that we think about and look at other people as objects rather than as individuals created in the mind of God, all of it, we use the word perversion. Perversion means that it's different or it's changed from God's design. But really, that word perversion or pranea is really just idolatry. It's like the Israelites saying, we want to worship God. We want someone to go before us. Let's make God look like a golden calf. It was idolatry because they were changing and perverting who God was and choosing to follow a created thing other than the creator. In the same way, 
sexual immorality, impurity, which could refer to a lot of things, but impurity is often referring to inappropriate thoughts, inappropriate behavior, inappropriate speech. Parents, kill those things in your kids, by the way. Don't tolerate that. Don't tolerate inappropriate talk from your sons and daughters. That just grows. It starts early. They might hear it from friends. They might hear it at school. It festers. It grows. And it turns into awfulness. Nip that in the bud. Nip that impurity in the bud. Passion, referring to the desire of our physical bodies when we're tempted, uh, when, when we're tempted to commit sexual sin or any kind of sin, that thing that we feel in our very body that we desire sin is what Paul refers to with passion. Evil desire could refer hate, anger. It could refer sick pleasure when bad things happen to people you don't like. But evil desire also has been used often to describe an evil sexual desire. Paul calls all these things covetousness, wanting things that aren't ours. And sexual sin is a form of covetousness. It is a form of idolatry because we covet the role of God in our sexuality. Transgenderism, the homosexual agenda, it's not just popular among the unbelieving because they think it gives rights to people. It's popular because it gives people the right to decide for themselves what they want to create themselves as. God created man and woman. The transgender movement says, well, you can recreate yourself as whatever you want. You can have the role that is reserved only for God. That idea of covetousness was even how the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, saying if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will have the things that God has. Sexual sin does the same thing. It it, uh, tempts us to want to have the role of creator, of God. Um, It wants us to have wish fulfillment. And sexual sin, even before the Internet, uh, even before digital pornography, there's always been ways to try to satisfy that. There's always been things that the world has put before us in that. The second point is that the members of your body are wired for idolatry. Therefore, since they're wired for idolatry, especially in sexual sin, especially for people who have been Christians, maybe Christians for a long time, because Paul associates it with idolatry, we should treat sexual sin and sin in our lives in the same way that God called the Israelites to treat idolatry in their day. When God spoke against the Israelites because of their idolatry, he often described them as a sexually promiscuous woman in very vile language. He would say that you have betrayed me, you have cheated on me, you have brought in other things and people into our marriage bed, so to speak. That that the temple of God would sometimes have idols put into the temple where God was supposed to dwell, And God would describe that sin in the terms of marriage. Well, for Christians today, what is God's temple? Your body. When you watch porn, when you lust over someone that you see, when you play out fantasies in your mind, when you have uh, inappropriate thoughts that you know no one else will ever know about, you are bringing in idols into your body that you are worshiping, that you are asking God to share and worship on. And even if no one else may know, God knows. Therefore, God in the Old Testament, his response to idols was always the same. Destroy it. Don't just get the idols out of the temple. Destroy the idols. Obliterate them. Completely 
Remove them to dust. They shouldn't even exist. They should have no place. They should have no presence. Idols should be destroyed, which is why if you're going to destroy idols of sexual sin in the temple that is your body, but is also your flesh, the only way to destroy that idol is by crucifying your flesh, is by dying to your sin. That's the way that you destroy that idol is by crucifying your flesh in the moment of temptation. Because these aren't just things that make God unhappy. Sexual sin is not sin just because it's kind of gross or icky or embarrassing. It's sin because it demands that we worship something other than God, which is a breaking of the first and second commandment. God calls us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. Sexual sin, even for mature Christians, can get in the way of that very quickly. So stop being apathetic. Stop thinking, oh, well, this is just how I am. This is my body. I can't prevent it. I can't fix it. I can't change it. Jesus died for it. He crucified it. He rose on the third day. If God can do that, he can also equip you by his spirit to die to sin and live in resurrected life in the moments when you are sexually tempted. Wives, do not tolerate that from your husbands. Husbands, don't tolerate that in yourselves. But go to war. Make war against your flesh and execute it because it is wired for idolatry. And then the final thing, as we get ready to close, the third point. The reason behind all of this is in verse 6. Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And your third point is this, that God must destroy the members of your body. The key word there is must. When God says to crucify, to put to death the members of your flesh, it's with the understanding that your body is sinful and it must be destroyed. There's no escape from that. There's no escape from the wrath of God. God is a just God and that is never suspended for his mercy. His mercy, his grace, his love, they always work in tandem with his justice. God being a just judge and a good God, he must pour out his wrath on sin, including your sin. It's unavoidable. The question is, are you going to take the wrath of God at the second coming of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to opt for the wrath of God that was poured out on the first coming of Jesus because Jesus was the propitiation. He was the one who absorbed the wrath for our sin in our place on the cross. That's where the wrath went for those who trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So you have the question, do you want to trust in that wrath that came the first time, or do you want to wait for the second wrath that's going to come the second time? If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you not to wait for that second wrath because it's unavoidable. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, remember this as we prepare for communion, that God did not suspend his wrath because of your sexual sin. Maybe not even the sexual sin that you committed last night. God didn't just look it over. He didn't just forget about it. His wrath was poured out against it on Jesus. The sexual sin that you continue to commit, the wrath has been played out for it. It's been poured out. But that sexual sin, the wrath of that sin was poured out on Jesus. Therefore, based on all of this, if we want to live for heaven, let's die to self. 
let's recognize that like Eustace, we also must have the scales of our flesh slowly but surely ripped off. But let's look to Jesus on the cross and thank him, the resurrected Lord, for taking that death for us in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to be the propitiation that absorbed the wrath for us in our place. May we, as we take communion, look to the cross, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, And Lord, by your spirit, may you equip us to crucify, to execute, to mortify the parts of ourselves that tempt us to sin in the moment so that we may not obey our sinful desires, but instead obey you in your word. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.